The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. I'm excited to look at this word together, this picture of Christ that we get today and how to respond to him. But before we do that, let's pray, ask God for help. Uh, Lord, you're a speaking God and how much... How much do we need you to speak to us today? We thank you. Um, You're always with us in Christ. You're always speaking in him from the pages of your word. And so, Lord, uh, we ask now as we come before your word, Lord, that you give us clear thinking. Lord, to think about what you're saying, that you'd give us humble, submitted hearts to not just understand you, but to believe you. And that we would present ourselves to you as as yours and wholly yours, uh, no matter the cost. It would be our joy to do so. So please help us, Lord, as we hear and uh, move us towards you. By the power of your spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, today is Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. And uh, it's a day where churches throughout history churches all over the world, well, we're remembering some of the amazing deeds of Jesus Christ. So what is this about? It's worth, it's worth asking that, right? Um, it's obviously not particularly, particularly about the branches of a palm tree. Uh, no, it's about how Jesus of Nazareth, right, after three years of leading, teaching, healing, He enters into Jerusalem, the the capital city of the people of God. He enters into this city as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God's promised king. So you read those gospel accounts and you realize that the city was just electric with the tension, right? The crowds were full of expectation and nothing went as expected. Nothing went as expected. You know, when when kings are coronated, it usually involves power, wealth, enthronement. And then you see Jesus entering the city, choosing to ride on a donkey. He had to borrow from someone else, symbolizing so much of, of his humility so much of uh, how he came to bring peace, that was not as expected. And his people, as he entered the city, they weren't clacking their swords on their shields, were they? No, they were waving palm branches or, or laying their coats in front of him. And all it was was just simple townsfolk acknowledging that Jesus had their allegiance. And and Jesus didn't go as king to any castle or fortress to be enthroned. He didn't go confront Pilate and the invading Romans. He he didn't go to uh, take down Herod and his palace. No, instead, Jesus shockingly, where does he go? He goes to the temple, the center of the worship of the living God, and he overturns the temple. None of this meets expectations. And it all leads to the most unexpected thing of all, his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion on a Roman cross. How's that that for a king? And the Gospel of Mark tells us that after that 
sham trial, the authorities took Jesus outside the city. Outside to the hill called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And so this, this very coming Friday, we're going to remember it. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was nailed to a cross. So it's Palm Sunday. And remember these deeds. Remember how things did not go as expected. But that trend continued, didn't it? Because on the third day after his crucifixion, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead just as he said he would. So it's Palm Sunday, and remembering these events of history, it gives us three very important things to consider. First, I think it's really important to remember that Christianity is a historical religion. It's a historical religion. So many religions, it seems, you know, they'll have their experiential aspect, right? The, the mysticism or the feeling of the religion, and of course, religions have a, a philosophical aspect. There's ideas and uh, propositions about meaning and truth. There's ethics. And of course, we as Christians, we think Christianity has the best version of both of those, experience and philosophy or ideas. But unlike most religions, Christianity depends upon and is founded on historical reality. Historical reality something that actually happened in real time, in real space. There's a person of real history. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he said some things and he did some things. And who he is and what he's done are everything to us. It's historical. Christianity is not first an experience or, or just a philosophy. It's historical reality. And so Christianity admits, if that historical reality isn't true, Christianity's garbage. Because even still today, some people want to say, oh, we don't need the history, but we can still do the experience. Garbage. Oh, we don't need the history, but we can still have some ideas. Garbage. It's only valuable in the sense that it's anchored in on a real person and what he's done. And, and here's the glory of this for us. I mean, think of what we're built on. We're built, we're built on the gospel. And you realize the gospel is true and real outside of you and your feelings. It's true and real outside of your circumstances. It's news proclaimed. It's work that's already been done. And so we don't tie our hopes ultimately to how we're feeling or ideas we're, uh, intellectual inventions we're conjuring up. We, we tie our hope to the reality of a person who exists and what he's done. It's a historical religion. That gives me a lot of hope, confidence. Second thing to note, and this is going to take us to our passage today, and the second thing to note comes in the form of a question. We're, we're thinking about Palm Sunday and what happened and how Jesus went into the city as God's king, and it ended up, he ended up on a cross. This text is going to tell us more about that cross and the meaning of that cross. Why did he go to the cross? Why did he go to the cross? What was he doing? So we want to, 
We want to ponder more deeply the events of this cross. Why would God's king, the anointed Messiah, become the, the cursed? Why would, he be, why would he do this? So we see some amazing things about the cross from this passage. And then the third thing to note, it's historical religion, it really happened. Why the cross? Third thing to note, another question. How should we respond to the historical person of Jesus and what he's done? How should you respond? Because the historical reality of what Jesus has done deserves historical response from me and from you today, tomorrow, our entire lives. So that's what we're looking at this morning. What does the cross mean and how should we respond? We're gonna start in verse 10, Hebrews 13, verse 10. There the writer says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar. Now, um, how many of you, as you came to church today, this was the question on your mind? Do we have an altar? <laughs> um, probably none of you. But you know, early Christians were mocked for not having any altars. Um, at the time this letter was written, I mean, every religion has altars. What are altars for? What do you do with an altar? It's the sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. And so we just, we remember the human heart knows this. Everybody knows this. There's a distance between us and the divine. There's a distance. You don't just come in however you want. Something has to be done to bridge that gap. And so there's, Priests who offer sacrifices on the altar. That's what the altar is about. Priests who offer sacrifices on the altar. And so certainly for this day, the, the pagan polytheism of Rome had altars for sacrifice. Go to some, go to different countries. You'll, you'll see this everywhere in some places. Uh, but of course, also the temple in Jerusalem had the altar for sacrifice according to the law that God gave to Moses, Right? That's where the altar is, and the Holy of Holies near it behind the curtain. And then Christians here in the first century, no altars, no sacrifices. So the, the second century church leader, Irenaeus, actually, he references people in his writings who said of Christians, you Christians don't even have a religion because you don't have any sacrifices. You're not even serious about what you're doing. You have no altar. So you think in the context of this letter, this, these Christians existing in the first century before the destruction of the temple, you think they felt that? The reality, hey, we, that, that, that important altar from the Mosaic law, that's in the temple. We, we don't have one anymore. Do you, think, do you think they felt that as a difference? Uh, certainly they did. And so the altar says, or the, the writer says, oh no, we have an altar. We have an altar, which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What he's saying is Christians have the ultimate altar. We have the, the greatest altar, the altar par excellence. This is it. This is it. This is what every altar looks to. And you know, the, the author likes to talk like this, doesn't he? Read, read through Hebrews and see how many times he says something like, we have. We have. And what he's saying is he sees those who have Jesus as enjoying privileges beyond belief. We are so ridiculously favored. 
So Hebrews 6.19, we have an anchor. Hebrews 8.1, we have a great high priest. Hebrews 10.19, we have confidence to enter God's presence. Hebrews 12.28, we have received an unshakable kingdom. And here, Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar. Who has all the goodness? We do. We have it. So he's telling his audience, it's, it's not we who are missing out on anything. We have such an altar, and then here he says something amazing. Even the high priest in Jerusalem, who gets to go into the Holy of Holies for a moment with the blood, we have an altar better than he does. In fact, because he doesn't have what we have, his altar isn't worth a thing in comparison to the altar that we have. So what does he mean? Okay, we have an altar. We have the best altar. We have the ultimate author. altar. What does it mean? Well, as you move forward in the text, you see the author is remembering the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in Israel. You can read about it in Leviticus 16, right? And this is one of those sober, all-important days for the people of Israel. The bull is sacrificed for the sin of the people. And blood is taken into the holy place. Who gets to do that? Only the high priest. He only gets to stay in there for a moment. How, how often does he get to do this? Once a year, that's it. And so what is, what is that teaching us, this distance? Only the high priest can only come in with blood for his sins and the sins of the people. And only once a year and only for a little, and he better be careful. What's that teaching us? It reminds us God is holy. He is holy. And he is, part of his holiness is that he is morally perfect. And he has a just, hot, overwhelming anger at sin. He hates sin and he will judge it. So this leads to a problem, right? You've got this whole idea of an altar. It's like, how are we going to fellowship with God. And we start with asserting the reality that the living God, the true God, is holy, perfectly holy. That's obviously a problem. Why is that a problem? Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And let's remember what sin is. It's not something you, you tripped into on accident once. It's an inclination against God. It's a denial that God is good. It's a, it's a denial that his word is true and a refusal to submit to that word. And then when you believe those two things, you replace him with something else. In our sin, it's like we're little mini counterfeit gods paving our own way, inventing our own truth, our own meaning and we're, we're rebellious, we're sinful. So how is this gap gonna be bridged so that we sinful people can come and enjoy fellowship with a good and holy God when we're sinners? Well, that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about, this day of atonement. The community remembers the only thing that can bring a holy God and sinful people together is a substitutionary death of another. 
I mean, the, the logic of this is we all deserve what that bull got due to our sin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. We all deserve what that bull got, but the bull took it somehow, symbolically, and that, that blood is brought near. And so, in a way, it's this picture that wrath deserved has been poured out so on, on, on something else so that those who deserve the wrath can actually come into fellowship with God and not receive the wrath. A substitution has taken place as the only way justice and mercy can kiss, can coexist together. The author mentioned, uh, we have an altar, and he says, um, from which those who serve in the tent, they have no right to eat. And the reason he's thinking about priests eating uh, in connection with an altar and a sacrifice is one way the Levitical priests received their provision was they could eat of some of the sacrifices. Uh, they gave them food. Uh, they did their work for the Lord. Filet mignon, okay? Uh, that's a good pattern, all right? Uh, but, but not from this one. They, they cannot eat this one. Nobody gets to, to touch anything from this one. In fact, after the sacrifices, on this day of atonement sacrifice, the bull what's left of it, is taken outside the camp and it's burned. And that is just so laden with meaning. Because if you read through, especially the Torah, you see that outside the camp, what goes outside the camp? The filth goes outside the camp. When you punish the blasphemer, that's outside the camp. The, the refuse, the despised, that goes outside the camp. And so it's almost like this, the remains of this bull represent sin itself. Get it out. Get it away from the presence of God for sure and get it away from his people. So in a way, it's very gracious. It's this idea that God is removing sin and the problem from the people. And so you would, you would burn it in the sense that it's just wholly devoted to him. Nobody eats this. It's, it's burnt outside the camp. So maybe you've tried to read through your Bible before and you got through Leviticus 16 and maybe you noticed how the bulls burn outside the camp and maybe you, I don't know, you, when you try to read through that, sometimes you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Why does it matter? The writer of Hebrews says, oh, it matters. And he does what he's done with every single Old Testament text that exists. As he sees the parallel of a substitutionary death for sin and the remains of that sacrifice taken outside the camp, he sees, who does he see? He sees Jesus. There's a parallel here. Even this idea of this sacrifice representing sin taken outside the camp, even this idea, he says, it points to Jesus. Just like those remains were represented the, the vileness of sin and were taken outside to be burned, the Gospels tell us Jesus went into the temple, overturned the temple, told us what the temple is about. But then he was rejected, he was betrayed, he was taken outside the camp. You can read about that story in the Gospels. You can see 
a beaten, a flogged, a mocked Jesus, crown of thorns on his head, just reviled, mistreated by every possible group, carrying the beam of a cross outside the camp, rejected in every way to that hill, the hill of the skull, where he would be hung up naked and nailed to this tree, hung up naked on the wood. Of course, in the ancient world, like it was impolite to speak of crucifixion publicly. It's just utter shame. The Apostle Paul writes about how to, to Jewish folks, this is like, this is unbelievable. This is a stumbling block for them because the cross is so dirty and so shameful and so reviling, it was just unbelievable for them to think that God's anointed king would end up on a cross. No way, it can't be. The cross was reserved for the dirtiest of the dirty. And there Jesus, outside the camp, was hung up naked as everybody watched him bleed and struggle and suffocate. And then even you read these, these gospel accounts, even as disgusting when you see it, his opponents come to where he is at the cross and they mock him further. And if you're ever going to think, all right, enough, it would be there when he's on the cross. But no, even there, they mock him further. They revile him. You're so despised, you're not even worthy of compassion right here in this moment. Why did Jesus do this? Look at verse 12. This is our gospel. This is our hope. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to what? Sanctify the people through his own blood. We have an altar. It's Jesus and his cross. There our king embraced his role as our priest. And after living a truly a human life, made like us in every respect, yet without sin, after living a perfect human life without sin, he offered himself up as the sacrifice outside the camp so that through his own blood, we might be sanctified. Other places in the New Testament, the word sanctified is used differently. It's used um, to mean kind of your progressive growth to be like Jesus. It's a valid way to use that word. Your sanctification is um, you've already made right with God through, by grace through faith. You trusted him, you're justified, you're counted righteous. And now sanctification, that's what God's doing in your life he saved you when you were totally and completely sinful, counted you righteous with the righteous of someone, righteousness of someone else. He put Jesus' righteousness on you through faith alone. And now sanctification is growing in that, to become what you already are because of what Christ has done for you. But here in Hebrews, to sanctify you means he's made you holy. He's washed you clean. He has set you apart to belong in his presence. 
and be his so that you can worship with joyful confidence and enjoy fellowship with him and be devoted to him with all you are. Friends, what was the cost that sanctified you to bring you into the presence of a holy God? What was the cost? Was the blood of Jesus Christ outside the camp? I mean, think of it. We, we were the ones outside the camp in our sin. We were outside the camp. We were rebellious. We're, we're by any standard of holiness, we are to be despised and rejected. We're not good people according to God's standard. We deserve his wrath. I mean, if you read Ephesians 2, what does he call us? Children of wrath in our sin. That's, that's where we live and move outside the camp. And you think of what Jesus did. He came to where he never needed to be. He came to where we are to come and get us, to embrace us there to wear our story so that he could take us where he's from. Bring us to the holy presence of God. We just remember his priesthood in this book and how the eternal son of God took upon himself human nature, cares for us, came to be with us, did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life with no sin and he came to take our place. So every sacrifice in that Mosaic law, and that Old Testament system, it was all pointing to the real thing, the Lord Jesus on the cross in our place, and there the great trade was made. He was treated like our unholiness so that we could be holy. Or Paul says it in this way, 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. What's, the, what's the, the request he gives, the, invoca- the invitation he gives? Be reconciled to God. Right, there's a, a brokenness in that relationship, but through Christ, God has turned his face towards you through what Jesus has done on the cross. And if, if you will look to Christ, God desires to be reconciled with you so that you would turn towards him through Christ. And then, this incredible line, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, who's that? The sinful but loved people of God. For our sake. So this is for your sake. And it's not just to a vague, unnamed, unknowable group of people. It's very personal. He knows his sheep. For your sake, personally. God made him Jesus Christ. And now look at the next phrase. To be sin who knew no sin. What does it mean? It's the idea of substitution. Think of all the sins of every one of God's people. From little nitpicky, prideful sins of self-righteousness. All the way to the sins of slave trading every abuse, every corruption, every lie, every faithlessness, every crime. God treated Jesus like that sin deserves on the cross outside the camp. This is why, this is why Jesus' moment in the Garden of Gethsemane was so overwhelming. 
He had a taste of what was coming. It was the first time you ever see Jesus overwhelmed. Take this cup from me. It's why you hear Jesus, the pillar of strength, cry out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because I'm treating you like their sin. You're despised as you wear their sin. You're, you're, you're receiving the just wrath deserved for their sin. God made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, and now think of the trade, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become, what do we now become? The righteousness of God. Do you see the trade Jesus made with you? I will take your sin and what you deserve, and I will give you my righteousness so that you can have what I deserve. And so through faith in him, we're righteous. God, de God declares you, counts you innocent. How can this be? Because you wear the perfection of another. You wear the accomplishments of the deeds of another. They have been given to you through faith alone. Alone. You look to Christ and trust in him. We're sanctified. God has removed our sin. We're washed. We're made holy so that we can have fellowship with him, worship and serve him as his treasured people. Church, do we have an altar? Do we have a priest? Do we have a sacrifice? Do we have confidence to go to the throne of grace? For mercy in time of need, verse 9, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What's going to strengthen your heart when you are falling apart? Grace, lavish, undeserved love of God for his people in Christ. What's going to strengthen your heart in time of need? Grace, and where do you find grace? The altar, the priest, the sacrifice. Jesus, the gospel, that's it, that's it. Do you see the meaning of the cross? It's just epic, it can't be overstated. Where Jesus Christ, a loving priest, took the place of his people. He took what we deserve so we could have what he deserves. We have an altar how should we respond then to this king and what he's done? How should you respond to the king, to the priest, to the prophet who went to the cross for you? And we see this in Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, I'm told this word is a unique word. And it means something like, if you see that, you believe that, there's only one possible conclusion or response. There's, there's only one way to go from here. There's only one thing that makes sense. If you value Jesus and his cross, this is what you're gonna do. This is the way to respond. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let us go to him outside the camp. What does this mean? What does this mean? Obviously, it's not geographic. He, he, 
It would be nice to tour where Jesus may have died on the cross, but it has, has nothing to do with this verse. What does it mean to go to him outside the camp? Well, I think it means several things. First is it means, it means leave all competitors for your heart and your worship. Leave them behind. You could hear it like this, go to him. Go to him. It's a picture of further repentance. Repentance means to turn, and you're, you're walking one way, and you realize you're convinced, you're convicted. This is not the way to walk. You're serving this, you're hoping in this. It's not the way to go, and you turn, and you go to him. Go to him. And we see here, if this text is true, look, the, who's the only way to be accepted by God? Jesus Christ, who's the only legitimate priest who can make anybody right with a holy God? Jesus Christ, what's the only sacrifice that could atone for sin and give someone fellowship with the Father? Jesus Christ, he's everything. If you don't go to him, you do not have God as your father. You have God as your judge. Go to him. If you go to him, you have everything. Go to him. Leave all competitors and go to him. But what about go to him outside the camp? You know, I think when this audience first heard these words, it would have echoed like thunder because they knew from a Jewish context, they knew exactly what outside the camp means. Remember the the context of this letter. These are Jewish Christians tempted to leave Jesus to return to worship according to the Mosaic law. And a main motivator for them to do that is no more marginalization and no more persecution. And this is the author's kind of final and fundamental call to them in this letter, and he's saying very clearly to them, you need to leave Judaism for Jesus. You need to leave it for Jesus. Because we remember, and the, and the writer has shown us, right, the Mosaic law, all its sacrifices, its priests, its imagery, its, its history was a shadow and a foretaste of the fulfillment, right? A shadow and a foretaste of the fulfillment. Priest sacrifices, temple, they all point to Jesus. It's all about him. And so now that the fulfillment of the promise has come, it would be a denial of the fulfillment to stay in the shadows. And he's, the author here is saying that day of atonement in the temple in Jerusalem, it's now obsolete. Jesus has done it once for all. And you know what the, you know what the, you know what the, the audience is thinking? If I embrace Jesus as everything, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, my community, my heritage, my family, my society, they're going to hate me. They're going to kick me out. They're going to revile me. They're going to despise me. I'll be rejected. And so you feel the pull. I'm going to know reproach if I embrace the truth that even though there's a temple functioning over there in Jerusalem, Jesus is the temple. I'm going to feel pain if I embrace the truth that even though there's a high priest over there in that building, Jesus is the high priest. I'm going to pay a cost if I admit that even though there's sacrifices over there, the cross 
was the sacrifice. I'm going to bear reproach if I, if I believe that, if I embrace that. And what is the writer saying to them? Go to him and what? Bear the reproach he endured. Go take up your cross. Go wear it. Go embrace it. Go to him outside the camp, willing to wear the world's disapproval for his sake. And so we remember our context is different, but in every time and in every age, somehow there will be a stigma, a mark of disgrace for genuinely belonging to Jesus. There will be. Jesus told us this, didn't he? Look at John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know, what do we need to know? It hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So first, there's a joy here, right? How do you like hearing this? Jesus says to you, I, Jesus, chose you to belong to me. If you have any esteem for Jesus at all, you should be like, yes. Yes. Yes, I have him. He chose me. The world won't like you. The world won't like you. You know what the Christian heart says? Worth it. Worth it. But suffering over time can beat you down. We've seen it in Hebrews. Suffering over time can beat you down. And so you have to remember. You have to remember. You have to think of him on the cross. You know, this expectation of reproach, sometimes it does keep people from coming to Jesus. It does. You'll see people interested in Jesus, but you'll realize, well, for some of them, it's like, I don't want to be identified with a Christian church. I don't want to be part of those people. Or I don't want to be seen as unintellectual. I don't want to see... I don't want to be seen as behind the times. I don't want to be seen as bigoted or judgmental. But the key phrase is, I don't want to be seen, despised by some group or community. But do you realize, if you're not willing to wear Christ's reproach, it's fair to ask if you've really tasted of his grace. If if you're not willing to wear his reproach, You've put a price on what Christ is worth. And if you're not willing to wear his reproach, you are saying that he's worth less than your comfort. And you are saying that he's worth less than the praise of these crowds. And you forgot the reproach he wore for you. Just remember the reproach he wore. For you. That's so much about what this week is about. That's what we're going to think about on Good Friday. You just see Jesus reproached. This glorious, amazing, beautiful, righteous man. Hated, slandered, mistreated, mocked, lied about, betrayed by close friends, abandoned 
tortured, taken outside the camp and hung naked. And, it, and in Hebrews 12, it says, look to Jesus. Remember, remember what it says? He, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus, in his mind and heart, thought of you, thought of me, thought of his people, and thought of the reproach of the cross. I mean, just utter reproach. And you know what Jesus said? Worth it. Worth it. To sanctify us by his blood, which means we, we got to go to him, and if it brings reproach, we remember him, and what do we say? Worth it. It's worth it. We go to him bearing the reproach because we're satisfied in him, friends. We're satisfied. Look at what verse 13 says. 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go out, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For, for, here's another thing you remember. Here, what do we have here? Or what do we not have here? Here, we have no lasting city. And that is, that is also laden with meaning. What beauty do you have here that will last? There's lots of beauty here. It's God's gift to enjoy, but will it last? What relationships do you have here that will last? It's great relationships. We lose them, don't we? We lose them in death. Your, your finance is going to last? Is your body going to last? Is your, is your society going to last? Is your community going to last? Here we have no lasting city. This world is a beautiful place. We want to work for God's kingdom. Sometimes good triumphs. We're thankful for all God's gift. Praise God, the place is cursed. We remember that, don't we? It is futile and ultimately hopeless on its own. And you know, if you won't go to him and bear his reproach, where are you putting what basket are you putting all your eggs in? Here, bad investment. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to shake out creation like, like an old coat. He's going to renew it, remake it, restore it. And we will be with him together in a new earth more real, more beautiful, in new bodies, glorified, fit to enjoy the presence of God in one another forever. We, we have an unshakable kingdom, and it will last. And look, this is, this is our hope. This is always our hope. This, is, this was the example of the people of faith. You remember Hebrews 11? It goes all the way back to Abraham, Hebrews 11.10. Abraham was looking forward to what? The city, and what city did he want? It has, what does this city have? It has foundations, it lasts. Whose designer and builder is God. Didn't Jesus say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you? You think it'll be nice? You think it'll be all right? His designer and builder is God, or, or here's very close to the text we're looking at this morning. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, look, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Look at the trade Moses made. It's a trade every believer makes. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater, what's that next word? Wealth. The Bible does this to you, right? What do you find wealth to be? And one way you're to answer it is, to me, one of my greatest treasures is the reproach of Christ. And when we, need, we want to be careful here, right? Should Christians uh, kind of get like a martyrdom syndrome on and do things to intentionally suffer and then feel glorious about that? No. No. Or, or, should be, or, or, or can we kind of just be obnoxious, be legalistic, be self-righteous, what the world would call jerks, and then be like, I'm just suffering for Jesus? No. No. No, we want humility. We want gentleness. We want genuineness. But in the expectation that there will be a reproach for belonging to Jesus, guess what? It's a treasure. It's a treasure. Because you love him so much that to be identified with him as his is a great privilege. It's a great privilege to be seen as belonging to Jesus. And we do it because we're satisfied in him. There's a reward. There will be a city. It will be all right. All will be well. We'll be shocked with God's goodness forever. What does the cross mean? We have an altar. Through Jesus' blood, we have been sanctified. Our response, go to him no matter the cost because you're satisfied in him. One more response you see in verse 15. Therefore, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's, a, it's an amazing turn here in this passage. We know in Hebrews that Jesus is the ultimate priest. We just saw that the high priest can't even eat off the altar we have because we are enjoying all the fullness of who Jesus is. But now he just told all of us to start offering what? Sacrifices. Look who is working now in priestly service. It's you and it's me. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. This is really important because you and I don't offer sacrifices of atonement, do we? Praise God. That's what you're doing when you try to earn your salvation. I could just give my life enough where I could finally make God pleased with me. I will have saved myself by my goodness. Give that up right now. Number one, you can't do it. Your sacrifices will never be good enough. And why would you want to mess with the, the one beautiful thing that's been done once for all, Jesus Christ? That's enough. His alone is the sacrifice of atonement. But we offer sacrifices of praise. Praise is joy expressed. And so when your heart is so thrilled with Jesus and what he's done for you, you then want to offer yourself to him. You want to live for his pleasure and for his glory. And it's a joyful thing, even in reproach. Look at Luke eleven twenty two. 22. Blessed are you. That's like happy are you. Favored are you. Blessed are you when what? When people hate you. That's another one of those, what? 
People hate me. My life's, no, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. And this is a bad day. This is miserable. Blessed are you when this happens to you on account of the Son of Man. It's because you belong to Jesus. What should you do in that day, church? Verse 23. Rejoice in that day. And look at the next phrase. Leap for joy. When is the last time you did that? Some of you, it's like, those days are over, just clap, you know, no more leaping. Leap for joy. Why would you do this? Your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did the prophets. You're in good company. You're good company. You're in the company you want to be in. You belong to Jesus and his people. So he's your joy. He's your joy. And then one way then we offer ourselves the sacrifices of praise are lips that acknowledge his name. Lips that acknowledge his name. You can think about the situation of this group of people. They could be like, I believe, Je- I believe in Jesus in my heart, okay? Well, that's good. And why would you just keep it there? Because I don't want to bear the reproach. And so what happens if your lips acknowledge his name? I love Jesus. I love who he is. I love what he's done. I want to talk about him and his ways to others. I identify as his. I delight in him. If you speak that out, well, now now you can pay the price. What does it mean to offer self as a sacrifice of praise? Acknowledge his name with your lips. Some of us need to ask why some of our friends don't even know we're Christians. Some of us need to ask why sometimes we're undercover as belonging to Christ. Some of us need to ponder this call to acknowledge Jesus somehow in the way that, in the way that we talk, in the way that we communicate, to not be ashamed at all. Obviously, it's an art sometimes, right? There's a way to do this, a way not to do this. Sometimes we don't know how to do this. But the the main thing to ask is, are you afraid of doing this because you're scared of the reproach? Go to him and wear his reproach. Speak of him. Speak of him. And this is another picture of being outside the camp, isn't it? Jesus went outside the camp for us. Guess what we're supposed to do? Go outside the camp for others. I mean, think of, think of our camp right here, sort of, kind of. A community of believers, right? And we can acknowledge Jesus together and love him together. Where does the Lord want to send you this week? Outside the camp to somebody who's, who doesn't know Christ, to speak of Jesus. Even something as simple as, are you going to church anywhere for Easter? You want to come? And I'll take you to lunch. What do you think of Jesus? Will you acknowledge his name? It's part of being a sacrifice of praise. You're willing to talk and share about the glory of Jesus because you're not afraid of that reproach. So we want to go to him. We want to go to him as a sacrifice of praise. We want to do that with our mouth. And then a final thing for us to note here at the end, verse 16. 
Another way we wanna go to him, another way we wanna respond. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This language kind of means stop not doing this. Stop not doing this. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have, for these sacrifices are pleasing to God. I can imagine this audience thinking of the great sacrifices in the temple and and how, you know, if you, if you read the Mosaic Law and the sacrifice would be offered, and be, it will rise as a pleasing aroma. There's great sacrifices in that great building with those great priests. And then, and then here it's just flipped. No, you being generous and doing good works in love and service to one another, those are actually the sacrifices where God says, I delight in that. That's beautiful to me. So I just, I just want to praise you, church, for so many of the ways that you do this. You do love one another. You do want to serve one another. You do want to reach out to one another. Grow in it. Like, let's grow in it. Let's continue in it because we realize our Jesus delights in this. We glorify him in this way. And it's kind of like a, it's a broad category, right? Good works. What, what's in there? Well, many, many, many things. But, but an issue here, well, let me give you just one example, encourage, you, encourage some of you specifically. In, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul um, remembers an, an example of a godly woman. This is an example. It's not, it's not the all-encompassing example. It's an example. But I, I want you to see what counts as good works that are pleasing to God because sometimes we can think if I'm not doing epic, something epic that didn't make a newspaper, didn't get a promotion, like it's not valuable. Look at this, 1 Timothy 5.10. If this, if this woman has a reputation for good works, if she has what? Brought up children for Jesus. If she has shown hospitality. We saw that command of the church, didn't we? A couple weeks ago, the beginning of Hebrews. Don't neglect to show hospitality to one another. If she's washed the feet of the saints, those are menial tasks of the slave that help just meet practical needs for other people. If she has cared for the afflicted, somebody's hurting, and she went to that person just to listen, to care to offer service, if she's devoted herself to every good work. Look at this list. These, these aren't things that, that get you headlines. Sometimes, oddly in our culture, it might even get you reviling and mockery. They're pleasing to Jesus. They're pleasing to Jesus. So let's wrap it up. Conclusion. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, God's promised king, who literally, physically, historically died on a cross and rose from the dead. He now reigns enthroned at the right hand of God, and he will return. What does this cross mean? He was taken outside the camp so that we could be made holy by his blood. How are you going to respond to him? Go to him no matter the cost, because you are satisfied in his goodness. Second, devote your life as a sacrifice to him in speaking his name boldly and in living in generous and sacrificial love for one another. Let the history of your life be a sacrifice of praise, all because of what Jesus 
has literally and historically done for you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would raise our esteem for yourself and what we've done on the cross. Holy Spirit, just thrill our hearts with Christ today. And Lord, may we respond um, by going to you, no matter the cost, loving to belong to you, wearing your name faithfully, genuinely, no matter the reproach. And Lord, may we belong to you with all we are in generous, loving service to one another. Let us be devoted to one another in love as a picture of your devotion to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.